This is the Let's Grab Coffee podcast, and I'm your host, George Khalife. As a CEO of a tech company, which is WagePoint, and it's a payroll software for a lot of people who don't know, uh, focused on small businesses based out of Toronto, but also across US and Canada. You're based out of San Fran. We were just chatting, so uh, at least you're taking advantage of the sunshine. Uh, how has that been for you? I mean, you, you, you mentioned that, that the staff was fully remote even before this happened. Was this a massive transition for you? No, actually, not, not really. Um, our, the, the way that we've sort of structured uh, Wagepoint from pretty much day one has been uh, as a remote company. So I've, I've talked about this before. Like I, I've always thought that with payroll specifically, the subject matter is so, is so important and it's kind of difficult to find those resources. So instead of saying, okay, I'm going to have geography as another thing I have to solve, like, you know, if we just base ourselves in one location, I figured that if we just do remote really well and become like, you know, really well-run remote company, that would be the best way to solve a resource problem. Um, no, so that's kind of why we've always been remote. And now like, you know, we feel like a bit like oracles, you know, I, it's never, it has never been because of a fear of a pandemic because I, this never occurred to me, but we just happen to get lucky in the sense that this hasn't disrupted our, our operations in any way. Amazing. Well, that's good to hear. What were, I mean, when, when this was all happening and, you know, and I'm sure, I mean, you've, you've been the CEO of WagePoint now for about seven years, so it's not obviously new to you. You're a serial entrepreneur, uh, but just curious, like even from your past ventures, how, how, you know, in, in terms of dealing with maybe a bit of setback in different ways, some, you know, ambiguity, which all entrepreneurs should be hopefully comfortable with. What is that process for you as a, as a CEO? Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, I mean, ambiguity is a, is like literally my day job. Exactly. You know, ask, <laughs> yeah. Like, I mean, if I had like, you know, on sort of my LinkedIn profile, I should just read and every day is ambiguous. That's literally That's what right. it's like. And it's not because we don't have purpose and we're not driven and we don't know what's, you know, what we're doing. It's more that there's so much, there's always things that are just, just it's evolution every day. There's something that is happening that you evolve in from a thought standpoint, from a decision standpoint, from a people standpoint, like sometimes the way you're dealing with people, it's all of that stuff. So I think that, I think we're just at least, uh, you know, entrepreneurs, I think like for me, I'm sort of a dyed in the wool entrepreneur. Like I was born in this sort of mindset, if you will. So mm-hmm. because I'm, I'm so used to dealing with uncertainty, the uncertainty in the macro world, it doesn't phase me as much because it's just part of, Part of what we all have to deal with as a group. Now, I will tell you that it is obviously different when it is a health concern. Like, you know, the idea of you falling sick is a bit, you know, it's a lot worse than you making a, like having a business success or failure. Um, so there is definitely that aspect, you know, the part where you're just a, a human being and you're worried about like your health and the health of the people that you care about um, and just the health of the globe in general. But outside of that fear, the uncertainty isn't really, uh, it doesn't really factor in that much. Got it. And what I love too about what you say, I mean, uh, it's funny because, you know, you're like, I should change that that headline to just dealing with ambiguity on, on a daily basis. But the other thing you say on your LinkedIn too, which I love is building the kind of company I've always wanted to work at. Where did that stem from? Like, did you have maybe more negative experiences in the past? You've come across maybe managers or companies that you worked at and, and you're just like, man, if I were able to do this, I would just do it so much better. That is a great question also. George, you're really knocking out of the park here. Um, I've been doing a few podcasts and these are actually, these are always the kind of questions I hope that I get asked. And, and many times <laughs> I do. 
but you're you're really yeah i'm happy with this one um yeah so that's a really good question because i've thought a lot about this um i've had great experiences prior to this that was not never the problem that i've had um for me the way that um the way that businesses are built it's very process centric and systems and productivity and all that other stuff and i've never really enjoyed those things i've always thought that business or any company a company is just a community it's a group of people with a shared purpose that's it at one point that would have been like all of us getting together and raising a barn you know for some right. cars that's the same thing today it's the exact same thing but yet when we're in the environment of work somehow we get stiff and robotic and we're worried about how we're perceived the same things that when the same person that you are in your real life if you will at your personal life the the person you are you become someone else completely when you're at work because you're so worried about the consequences of every behavior and how it's perceived that is really what i have disliked it's not about the the place i've worked is that how we all think about ourselves at work is how what i've actually wanted to change in the way that mm-hmm. i built my company so it was never about any specific experiences about how we think of ourselves as a collective i'm not an individualist person i'm a collective person i'm all about collective uh thinking community building how do we solve for each other and so right. that doesn't happen in business very often because business is all about like you know profits and cutting i i actually totally believe that you can have a very collective view and have all of those things as an outcome of the collective view profits um you know every shareholder is happy all of that other stuff but you don't have to sacrifice the human experience as part of that that's really mm. what the that's why i say that's i've always wanted to build the kind of company i've worked at it's not about an experience in the past it's about what i actually a vision for how i believe we should all be behaving with each other in in a business setting which for me is about allowing people to be their real self even in business Right. Yeah, I love that. I mean, it's almost saying like it's okay to be authentic in a in a startup environment. And sometimes I think that's what, you know, big corps get a bad rep for, right? It's like you have to assimilate into this kind of herd mentality and and be like everybody else and it's kind of tough to stand out because sometimes it's it's negatively looked upon. Uh, I was having a chat with one of one other CEO uh, actually based out of Toronto as well. Um a company that's that you know, I think has done very well, scaled very very quickly across different countries in the world. And one of the things he was telling me more recently was you know he's the type of ceo that um very very social very charismatic easy to build relationships with but sometimes that can go the wrong way so i'm curious from your perspective being very collaborative team centric obviously as a ceo as well and embedding that culture how do you do that while still maintaining proper boundaries so that you know essentially the job gets done that's a really good question also <laughs> um So yes to your point it's about allowing people to be the real version of themselves just being real that's mm-hmm. the whole point because if you think about it fronting requires you to essentially engage the parts of your brain or if you will that may create anxiety right because you don't want to be someone else you just want to be you so if you actually create an environment where people can be themselves it actually takes away the most amount of anxiety from their mind and that actually then allows them to be the best version of themselves which is just them So that's actually the the idea behind this is simply that. Um and the other thing that I'm very proud of is that we've been able to do that in a remote environment. So then the question is how, right? To your point, how does this not go overboard? Because people can, you know, in their real life they could be really wild, for example. How do they how do you make sure they don't become that person at 
work. The point of this matter is judgment, right? You, no matter what, what anyone does, if they don't demonstrate judgment, you know that person isn't fit to you in your, in your workplace. So what I do is I say, I build the boundaries of culture. I don't actually tell you what culture should be. I just tell you the things you should not do and what we would not tolerate under any circumstance, culture or no culture, whether you're, whether we're talking about in your personal life or whether we're talking about your business life, this would be stuff that as a collective, we would not tolerate. So for example, don't be racist, don't be sexist. And if you pardon my profanity, I say, don't be a dick. That's, those are the three things that we say you should not be, which is, I mean, there's more than that. Um, you know, you shouldn't be lots of other things, but really the point of the matter is don't hurt anybody. If you are going to hurt somebody, then you're already crossing the line and your judgment is now being questioned. So you just create those boundaries to say, this is, this is almost like a virtual handshake that we all have with each other. We're going to all be ourselves with the knowledge that anything that we do that hurts somebody else is not acceptable. That's it. It's literally that open so that you are only creating the boundaries in the right places, but everything else you should just be yourself. And that's exactly how our company operates. Got it. Uh, th- th- that's very interesting. How, d- how did you come up with that kind of culture? Like, was it, was it something you wanted to instill uh, for wage point? Was it something you read a mentor, you know, you, you experienced something with, with a mentor previously, like where did these traits come about? Well, if you really want to know the truth, then, most of best, most of management in the way that we understand it uh, in here in North America is, is uh, even in Europe, I guess, is Western style. It's using mm. Western philosophies like individualism and, you know, how do I get, how do I maximize my happiness and what's in it for me and so on and so forth. Even if you ask somebody, you know, if you ask an employee, they'll, they'll always say, you know, an employee will eventually ask what's in it for me. But the thing is that if you are, if the employee says, what's in it for all of us, that may actually change the narrative. And that has a lot to do with Eastern philosophy, right? Like how you think about, right. uh, again, like a collective consciousness, the fact that we all want the same things is a reality. We all, I mean, even if you think of Maslow's hierarchy of need, for example, there's a reason that, 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 that hierarchy actually works across the board, across all cultures, because we all want the same thing eventually. But a lot of that comes from Eastern philosophy, which is how I grew up. So really what I, all I'm doing is building a company in North America and more Eastern philosophy. That's pretty much it. So it's not, it's not more complicated than that, but of course the concepts feel complicated because the way that we've been, the way we've been taught to do it is very, like I said, using these Western philosophy around individualism. So that's kind of mm-hmm. the difference. I don't know if this is like a very esoteric conversation for, very your, cool. for your base, but since we are grabbing coffee here, I'm sort of sharing this. No, I love it, man. This is, this is very cool. Especially, I mean, as, as you're talking about kind of different cultures, right? I think that's, that's a very cool thing to do. I, I haven't heard, you know, culture being intertwined with, with a startup philosophy in terms of, uh, uh, in terms of kind of strategy or management. So that's, that's very interesting. And that's why I wanted to ask that. Yeah, no, I mean, very, again, very few people pick up on this as to the why behind this. And so I very rarely talk about it. But I mean, if you, if you really wanted to know the truth, it's that if you, if you have, it's not even culture so much as philosophy, right? Like mm. if you actually think about everything I'm saying and you see how management is, is, works inside of, uh, inside of North America, you will see that it is very individualistic. And if you think of, of what Eastern philosophy says, it's all about collective, collective enterprise, if you will, that we're all 
the same and we all understand. And if we have to treat each other the same, then we all have the same needs. And then you sort of start to, it's not that, don't get me wrong, it's not that hierarchy doesn't exist in the company. Of course it does. Because people have to make decisions at different levels of the company. And right. each person needs to know what decision they, are, they can and cannot make. So of mm -hmm. course hierarchy exists. But that does not mean that people are unequal because a hierarchy exists. And that's mm -hmm. the distinction. So if, if you follow that through, you can treat everyone absolutely the same way you'd want to essentially have yourself treat, been treated and still have the outcome of profits and, and shareholders happy and all that other stuff. That's really the, the angle that I've, I've always taken and I will continue to take. Yeah. And, and speaking of why, I mean, when you look at kind of wage point and, and your background, it's interesting that you transition into, into this specific space. And, I, and I'm curious to know from, from, you know, diving into financial services, you know, building a platform that makes it, I guess, more friendly, uh, quicker, more simply to, uh, to help these businesses with payroll. Um, why specifically this? Like, what was the pain point? Was it something you discovered or something that you heard in the market you encountered? That's, okay, yeah. So I, I can absolutely share the story behind this. Um, so I, because I'm an entrepreneur and I've always known I was going to be an entrepreneur, I, I'm not the kind of entrepreneur that falls in love with a product. I mm. absolutely fall in love with a problem. And I, when I see a problem, I'm like, I think I can solve that. And I think I can solve that better than everyone else. That's pretty much it. So when I was looking at the space and I wasn't like, oh, I love payroll. I have to solve payroll. I was looking for a business. I was looking to start a business where in a place where I could build a better mousetrap in a very large market. And that happened to be, I looked at payroll and I was like, you know what? This is a need product, not a want product. So it's a, it's a painkiller, not a vitamin. It's a large market incumbents that have been around for a very long time. It doesn't feel like that the incumbents are very tech forward. They seem like service companies, not like technology companies. I can build a technology company. And I also saw the path to the small business owner because what happens when you get to the size of like, you know, some of the incumbents in the, in the space, you're trying to service everybody in that, in your, uh, in the market, you're like small, medium, large, super large. Like you're trying to do everything for everyone in that process. Somebody will not get what they're looking for or what they need. What we decided is we're going to just be the small business payroll software company. We're going to be category leaders for small businesses. We're going to show the discipline that it takes to not go above that because we know that then we'll sacrifice stuff for that, that base. So we just really owned and represented that base so diligently that when a small business owner takes a look at our offering, they feel like we've built it just for them. It's that positioning where there's so much relatability between us what is when a small business sees small business owner sees us they feel like we are them that is what uh, has gotten us from a positioning standpoint to where we're at and how i spotted that is just by the process of elimination of what is happening from a competitor standpoint got it that makes a lot of sense i mean and and in terms of focusing on on the small business side what was that? Because sometimes, you know, you, you talk to founders and a lot of the times they're pivoting and kind of, I mean, obviously they, they adjust, they pivot midway. It seems to me that um, the idea for this kind of app was really focused on small business across North America. And you guys now service, I think it's 6,000 customers. Uh, you do 60,000 direct deposits per month. Um, when you were looking to build this, was your focus raising capital uh, as, as, you know, 
that tends to be the case, I would say, in San Fran or you know the the Bay areas or even the coasts. Or was it? Let me let me put this idea. Let me sort of conceptualize it. Let me see if we can gain momentum. Because a lot of people listening are aspiring founders. Some are either working on an idea or don't have one. So I think they would be curious to know what were those first steps into actually making this happen? Like, how did you get to that first customer? Yeah, for sure. I mean, it's a, it's an interesting story. So um, I, I only ever think about the customer. I don't care about anything else that will follow, like whether it's funding, whether it's, you know, I don't know, like, more customers, I guess. I am only thinking about the, the next step. I, I have a plan for like three or four steps from now, but I don't have a plan for 10 steps for now. And I also don't have, uh, I also am focused only on the next step. And this is actually a very common problem that people have. I've made it too. That's how I, I'm aware of it. What happens is when we are thinking about a business, building a business, we're already thinking about solving problems that we're going to have much later. We're like, okay, how are we going to, how am I going to scale this, this situation? Like, you know, when we have 10,000 customers, the part of the issue is that we are using your mental capacity to solve a problem that does not exist. You have to solve a problem that you have today, which is getting my first customer, you see? And so what I did was I said, well, I, I know we're going to build payroll. I know there's already incumbents in this space. We need to find a good path to the market, uh, or like a good strategy for how, what we are going to build that is specific to this space. So what we did is we put up a, a website that did, that had small business payroll as a service. So it looked like a technology website, but really it was us doing, you know, mechanical Turk in the background. So we were actually running physical payrolls, not on a system. But by this time I already had somebody that uh, my co-founder, Ryan Deneen, who was going to build uh, the software, but we didn't know exactly like from a front end standpoint, we didn't know exactly how to build it so that it was as simple as possible. So what we did is we put up a website and we said, we'll do your payroll. And one of the, on the second page of the website, uh, I think it was on the, how it works. There was a form that you could download that would show you that would, that would basically give you a sneak peek of what happens next. (laughs) Don't, I mean, don't ask me why we thought this would be a good idea, but it was just get a sneak peek of the forms that you need to use to set up your payroll. Instead of putting this on the call to action, we just put it on the second page and that form got downloaded like two or 300 times. And we got obviously emails from that form and I called every single one of them and I talked to every single one of them. So we did really hardcore customer development. That's what we did. That was the first step. We just talked to customers and we understood what it is that they would need. And in that process, we understood that they actually would need us to be that need us to default a whole bunch of stuff. So you just like, how can we get you not put you in a position where it's really easy for you to set up and not get you in any sort of trouble in that process, mm-hmm. like where you're making the right selections for the government, but you can override those selections if you know what you're doing. So we basically just built for that base because we understood from those conversations that they want us to make the decisions for them as much as possible. That is how we started the, the journey of building the company before we thought about funding before we thought about where we're going to head as a company we just focus on the customer yeah and and i i feel like sometimes it's so easy to say that versus actually doing it you know like you hear you hear that word thrown around so many times across different orgs you'll say like customer centric and we really put them first but i feel like not a lot of people actually take that time to, to really practice what that means essentially um and i've heard multiple ceos like say when when you really think about 
the, the position of the consumer first. You really have to be in their shoes. You know, like you really have to see it from their vantage point. And it's a tough practice to do. Like I'm not saying it's easy, but if you really want to understand them, you really have to see it from it. it and I remember now the analogy. It's like saying, like, let's say you're, you're, you're in your living room. Uh, if, if you say you're customer centric, but you don't talk to them, it's like me looking uh, into your living room from the window. Sounds creepy, but that's kind of the analogy versus me, you know, coming in for a coffee and really chatting with you one to one in person, getting to know you, understanding what makes you tick, what, what you're passionate about. Then I get an understanding of Shred and I can really customize or personalize that offering. Exactly. You hit it right on the head. That, and, and you know what? I'll tell you something. I'm a very extroverted guy, um, but even for Seems me. Seems like it, man. Yeah, definitely. I'm very fortunate that I have this job and it, it requires me to be extroverted. Although I know there's tons of introverted CEOs that do very well as well. So I think it just depends. Uh, but but in, my, in my specific case, when I would, like when you are about to do something that you don't know a lot about, like payroll, for example, is fairly, it's not fairly, it's very complex. And building a payroll company is very hard. You know, whenever people tell me they want to build payroll, my first instinct isn't to, like feel, oh my God, there's another competitor. I actually want to go hug them because I know what they're in for, right? So, um, but I used to, there was a moment where I would, so I was in a, I was a dessert place somewhere in Toronto and I wanted to go ask them what payroll software they were using. And I was getting up from my seat, walking a few steps, turning around and coming and sitting down, which is mm. crazy for me because I can usually talk to anyone anywhere I go. But this, the pressure of learning about something that you don't know, you don't even know how to, the language, you don't know how to ask what to ask, the, the language to use to ask those questions, that pressure is, is pretty significant when you're starting any business. The only way that you solve that pressure is by just, at, just being an idiot for a few minutes, being the person who doesn't know anything but is struggling through that conversation. Three or four, 10, 15, 20 times later, you're like, it's starting to happen. And mm. that, that cadence is what you need to build and that resilience is what you need to build. So a lot of entrepreneurs think that, you know, it's about execution and, I mean, it is also about that. It's about executing in the right order or as right an order as possible, but it is also about building the resilience to be wrong, building the resilience to, to go up to someone that you don't know and not know how to speak to them because you've just started this business and you're trying to find the right words. Um, all of that stuff, that's actually what builds businesses. What would you say is the, is the most difficult part of going to that payment side? I mean, you kind of highlighted that, that when, you're, when you were giving that answer. You said, you know, if, if a founder comes to you with that idea, you probably, you know, you would just warn them about, about the, the sort of challenges. What were those big, big challenges that you faced? Payroll as a, as a category is extremely difficult. So there's a natural barrier to entry. It's difficult mm. to build. It's difficult to scale. Like, for example, to have an MVP for payroll, yeah. you, you need a very large product you know, because not only do you need a product, you need a whole bunch of systems in place. So you need to be able to, obviously that you need the, the system has to be able to calculate gross to net, but people need to be onboarded easily. They need to be mm -hmm. offboarded easily. They need to have all the variations and exceptions. So payroll is as much about exceptions as it is about rules. So if you're trying to build an MVP with exceptions in mind, that's a pretty big task. And then you have to have a whole money movement and tracking system that attaches to it. So if you're talking about like, you know, sometimes I look at some of my friends that have just pure software companies and 
they do nothing of this other stuff. And I feel kind of like envious of them. You know what I mean? I'm like, yeah. it seems so simple. You're so lucky. <laughs> yeah. At the same time, I know they have their own challenges. And so sure. I always joke that after this business is done and I'm like, I'm out of this business, I'm going to go start a library or something really simple because you almost yeah, need a best. counterbalance to the complexity. That's the best. It's amazing. Like these are some, sometimes, sometimes some of the things I, I think of as well, just starting, like I remember in Toronto, um, and I'll, I'll connect these two points, but in Toronto, uh, the co-founders of a fintech startup called Owl, which I worked for uh, as the head of marketing media at one point, um, they used to go to this coffee shop next to their house. And it was owned by this guy who was like 80 years old, you know, wore suspenders, made every coffee with like precision, just loved that that act. And because of that, the coffee was of quality. He was just an amazing guy to talk to, you know, especially like, you know, obviously a guy at his age too has so much wisdom about life and stuff. So you're getting this like $3 coffee that really is worth probably like a hundred bucks, you know, but it's, it's, it's businesses like that sometimes that really, um, yeah, to your point, bounce it out. So to connect those two questions, um, the, the, the co-founders I worked for at Owl, you know, one of the challenges we always had, especially being fintech, when you're selling to, let's say, the big banks or insurers is getting on that preferred vendor list. For people who don't know, it's basically like that list that uh, XYZ Bank would look at as a priority when they have a pain point or a problem and they're looking for a solution that your technology can solve. Um, but, but getting that to that level, reputation, credibility, took a lot of time. I'm curious from your point how that was possible, um, especially as a, as a startup focused on maybe smaller businesses. Or maybe that that probably was the reason that they, they trusted you a bit quicker than, you know, a bank with 80,000 employees. Yes. So you hit it right on the head um, because we were working with small businesses and small businesses, they, they buy with their heart, right? They don't buy with, I mean, of course they buy with their head also, because if you don't have like what you offer are table stakes, the fact that you do payroll is table stakes. You should do that. If you don't, if a payroll company doesn't do payroll, then they're, then what's the point, right? So right. that's table stakes. But to, for them to choose you, they are choosing because they feel good about working with you. That is the truth about small businesses. If you can make them feel good about that experience of working with you because you're friendly and easy to approach. And like we've had one of my favorite review, like feedback that we've ever gotten from a customer is this guy. He said, when I first started working with you guys, I, I was feeling a bit grumpy. Um, but every single person that has worked with me in your company has been so kind then now I must defeat your kindness by being even more kind myself. Mm. That, that feeling that you see that all he expressed was a feeling. He didn't talk about like the fact that we helped him with his direct deposits and his the payroll calculations, none of that. He just talked about how we made him feel. And in response to a first reaction that wasn't very positive from his side, we didn't, it didn't matter to us. We still made you feel good. That is how small businesses buy with their heart. We win their affection and then we win their attention. And that's basically have been our strategy the whole time. So, and I know I, I, I'm talking from an EQ standpoint as much as an IQ standpoint, because I do believe that these things have to be balanced in the business. Of course. Again, more, more Eastern philosophy, if you will. Um, and so the, the point being that even if you're in, a, in, your, in, in an enterprise company, if you're looking to make enterprise sales, you are still going to win someone's heart over there. And that person is going to go and lobby for you. It, the same thing is true both sides. In, his, in, in the enterprise case, though, they may not be able to succeed because they're not the only heart you have to win. But in the small business owner, uh, you, know, you, you get a more direct connection with the decision maker. And so that makes life a lot easier.
Yeah. I also feel like just that emotional connection you can resonate much better with because you're a small business owner yourself. Like I know we, we say, because when you say startup, immediately you think tech. And when you say small business, you think of like an accounting firm, a bakery or whatever, like a dentist uh, practice. It, it's funny how you split those two, but uh, in reality, they're, they're very much the same. So when you as a CEO are talking to another founder or business owner, you really resonate uh, from, from, I guess, that perspective to start. Uh, yeah. So, so it, and, it is very different. Sorry to interrupt, but to your point, that is what, like, even if I was, even let's say which one became like a massive company um, and it started to do, um, you know, right now, but I wanted to correct you, we have 12,000 customers across all our channels. Oh, um, okay. Wow. So double. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, it's pretty, pretty, pretty fun to, to run that size of a customer base. But, but yeah, see, that was a good setup, by the way, for, for those wondering, this was not something Shred and I uh, set up before the podcast. This, this naturally happened. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So even if we, even if we uh, get to, let's say, you know, 50,000 and our company is really big and we don't feel like a small business owner, a small business anymore. The yeah. truth of the matter is that we are like, you have to inhabit that person as, as you know, as uh, sci-fi as that sounds, like you really have to be that person in that moment. You cannot be the owner of Wagepoint, which is a large company. You only mm-hmm. have to be the person that you're serving, which is a small business owner. And you have to be that person all the time. You have to represent that person in every decision because that is your job as CEO of the company. So the point I'm trying to make is that this is, to, everything you've said is exactly in line with how we think as well, which is that, you really have to put this person, this customer, this avatar ahead of everything else, every other decision. Yeah, yeah, and it, it, it's, it's tough to do. I mean, you know, you know the, the, the quote I love, which is, um, it, it, it comes out of a book by an author called uh, Jeffrey Gittimer, I think. Uh, I'm just looking at it right now. Yeah, it's the little, little red book of selling. Um, and, and the quote is basically, you know, um, a sale will, will earn you a commission, a friendship will earn you a fortune. And people who know me, I like hear me say that all the time. But I love that because sometimes in sales, you can be very, very short term. And I think, uh, and, and you might have seen this, like, especially now with this whole COVID thing uh, going on, a lot of businesses uh, in some cases are capitalizing well because, you know, it's deserving and they're doing well. In other cases, they're marketing and de- deploying these weird ploys or, or tactics just to take advantage of people. And my only word of caution to those startups or founders, especially if I know them well, is, listen, man, um, you might capitalize now on a couple of dollars or pennies or whatever it is you're skimming for the next, let's say, couple months, year, two years. How long is this going to realistically last? But when this is all over, your reputation, that's not going anywhere. You know? Yeah, but also, I mean, totally. But also, like, what a way to what a way for humans to behave, right? It's like you have, if you want other people yeah. to behave good, this is my, this is the thing. It's so unnecessary. Like if humans can do so much more than we do today in the way that we interact with each other and we don't hold ourselves right. to the same standards and what, what can you expect from someone else? But to your right. point about building lasting or, or having friendship, building a fortune, I have a, a, a small anecdote. Like I was in a neighborhood here in San Francisco uh, a few days ago just going on a walk, not uh, still social distancing. Um, mm-hmm. But I saw there was like a, a neighborhood, uh, a barbershop or salon or whatever that has probably been around for a long time, which is why the neighborhood was, uh, had a GoFundMe page up for that, for that, for that particular business so that they could help keep it open and help it stay open. And that is the, that is the power of friendship, right? Like 
people have forgotten that this is a business. They've forgotten that this is a business that makes money. They've forgotten all of those things. All they care about is that this business survives because of the people inside of that business. And that's a perfect, you know, it's a perfect way of, of describing that quote that you just said and how it actually applies in real life. I love that. I love that. So much of what you're saying, you know, back to that Eastern philosophy, I feel it hinges like it. I, I think that's where you're drawing so much of your inspiration. Where are you originally from, if you don't mind me asking? Yeah, I mean, I have a pretty uh, fun background. So I, I grew up, I was born in Bahrain, grew up in Dubai. Hey. Uh, you? You're from, what? Sorry, I uh, had to stop. So I, oh, yeah. I, I, I graduated from Bahrain. That's why I like. Oh, well, that's awesome. Yeah, no, I was born there. I, gra- I grew up in Dubai. I'm, I'm Indian by ethnicity. A Canadian nice. by citizenship and American by residence. So you see, I have like very much a blended background, but, yeah. but of course in the end, this is the Indian philosophy. Eastern philosophy is, is still inside of my blood. And that is all I'm doing today is sharing some of that with at least building as I build a company. That's awesome, man. We, well, we share a very similar background. I used to, I used to, I mean, I half-heartedly joke about it, call, calling it the immigrant roadshow, but, um, yeah, I went, uh, like, I was born in Lebanon, uh, moved to Saudi, actually, for about 10 years, and then went, uh, moved to Canada, left, went back to Bahrain, and then came back yeah. uh, to North America. Almost, the same. So, almost within, within, like, spitting distance of each other the whole time. Yeah, exactly. Uh, and and I'm, I'm sure you agree that a lot of, I think a, a lot of what you went through as well, because I'm, I'm speaking because, I, you know, these are things that I experienced. But when you when you talk to different people, different ideologies, cultures, backgrounds, you come to a point now where you just understand people a bit better. And that's why I think you bring up EQ a bit more than the, the typical CEO, which I love to hear. I feel like you have a deeper understanding of maybe empathy as well for, for people and, and maybe leading from a, from a holistic view versus individualistic or very hierarchical. hundred percent. Everything you just said, that's exactly yeah. correct. It, it is, I mean, you know, there's, there is some benefit to having, been dropped into different cultures and different scenarios your whole life right you do have to assess the situation quickly but then you also have to like if you want to like be part of a community you have to you have to understand them quickly and feel with them quickly right so it's Mm -hmm. all the same thing but also to your point there's a there's a very very good uh like uh, i think these harvard business review articles that that uh sort of are all collated together and uh there's a, it's a book that says on emotional intelligence. It's like a really tiny book, but it actually talks about how EQ outperforms IQ in business, like consistently. So it's actually very sad because we don't really think with, we're such emotional creatures and we don't think with that very powerful tool very often, even though it is there to help guide us through those thoughts. So, and I'm not saying that you shouldn't use data and all that other stuff. You should absolutely have that but it should be in balance. You cannot have one over, override the other. So it's that balance that I'm constantly trying to achieve. Mm. Speaking of balance, how do you balance your day right now in terms of you know, being the CEO? Uh, I know you mentioned that a lot of you were, were remote, but like pre-COVID, were, were you traveling a lot to these different sites, seeing the different employees, or was that not necessarily a necessity uh, for what you were doing? No, yeah, we don't have like a, we don't have an aggregate of people um, in any one location. Although I guess we do have a, a larger group in some of the provinces, but mm-hmm. we would like, no, we have, uh, we have like wage stock, which is like a, basically a big party that we all have together. That's when we see each other. So we try to see each other at least once a year where the company would sponsor some group of people to come together. And it's usually like a blast because 
because people get along in the company uh, really well and there's almost no politics there's almost no gossip i say almost no because i can never be 100% sure but mm. uh, but there's you know it's that realness is so it's it's profound almost in the company which is why i love my company so much and i i love the company that we all keep with each other um but to your question i balance my time like so i i don't have a lot of meetings every day i have a lot of check-ins like as i needed like for 5 5 minutes here and there but i also spend a lot of time i not a lot of time but a good amount of time thinking like i actually spend i give myself time to think so how do you so do I, that though like bill gates goes to a retreat i think once a year for a week no, basically full silence doesn't speak to anyone what what do you do i do it every day I have a retreat nice. every day. <laughs> Actually, this is a perfect example. So Bill Gates and Warren Buffett were sitting with Charlie Rose uh, on some in some interview. I don't know if you the sixty minutes one. Yeah, yeah. And Bill Gates asked Warren Buffett to. Sh- he's like, you know, I used to think that I used to look at my calendar. I used to see all these. I was I was so productive. Look at me. There's so many meetings every day. I was I had no space for anything else. Look how productive I am. And then he said, and then Warren Buffett showed me his calendar and <laughs> Warren Buffett's planner or whatever. his daily planner it was like one meeting <laughs> and then yeah. and he's like yeah. what are you doing the rest of the time in warm office like i'm thinking that's what i'm doing and so i'm not saying that i have that kind of luxury because you know i don't have warm buffets war chest at the incident <laughs> yep. but yeah. i always find time to i i don't feel the you know the guilt that comes with not doing i just don't mm-hmm. feel that guilt because i know that in the time that i'm not doing i'm thinking and i'm still thinking about the business maybe not every minute because sometimes you need your mind to go somewhere else too but i don't it's that moment like it's not about going away and having a retreat although you may need that as well it's about having time. time in the day to think and and not yeah. feeling guilty about not taking action at that time also more eastern philosophy by the way yeah i know well it's funny i, I had uh, i had duncan wardle who was the former head of creativity and innovation at disney and and we spoke at length about this but also really embedded exercises people can do and and, and he it's funny because he told me he i mean he speaks a lot now does consulting and stuff but he tells me literally everywhere he goes that he asks people the same question and he does it so he gets like a, a a data point on it but he'll ask people like when do you guys feel the most creative is it uh, uh when you shower and you know you'll hear hear different responses well when i shower when i'm commuting when i go for a run or a walk uh, when i'm just kind of lazing around literally no one says at work you know uh, i mean willingly i mean it, it, uh, by work i'm i'm referring to like a cubicle style yeah, um, exactly. environment you know uh, and it's funny that that it's when your mind is so busy right scheduling presentations talking to people you have to do this there's an admin there's a fire you have to put out there is no chance for you to think uh, and and so what you're saying is very key and, and you actually wrote an, an or contributed to an article recently on Glo- uh, global sorry globe and mail about mental health um a lot of people probably or maybe are not subscribed to it so just curious like what were the key takeaways from that piece um i mean you know what most of that was it's the common sense stuff right like i mean on remote working like people have all kinds of misconceptions about what remote working actually is the it's like i can't tell you the number of people who are saying how do you manage people in rem- with remote work yeah yeah um, i mean i think i think that that's a question a lot of people probably would ask you right because they're not used yeah. to it no they're not because they think that as long as they can see people they're working and if they don't see them they're not working that's the conventional wisdom right and that is so problematic on so many levels think about the amount of anxiety it causes to be seen 
Just think about that for a second, mm-hmm. just to be seen by your boss or your by coworkers. I have experienced it when I first started working. I was like, what is this? This doesn't make any sense. If my work is getting done, I'm working. If it's not getting done, I'm not working. It's the result that matters. Does it matter whether I'm seen or not? And this is a, like, this is exactly how remote working works. You just, it's your job as the manager, if you will, to ensure that you know what the result of someone's work should look like. If you know that, then if they're delivering that, then they're, they're working. It's that simple. So right. whether they work, how they work, whether they're, you know, whether they have pants on or whether they're working at the right hours, although we, of course, expect people to be at their desk and available at uh, certain hours. So you have to have yeah. those expectations. Yeah. But in terms of actual productivity, man, I can tell you, like, the company is so productive that if I put them in an office, I'm afraid of losing productivity. <laughs> it's almost the opposite with you. It's totally the opposite problem. Because that's what I told you. This is all of this is expectation setting and everyone needs to know where they stand. So if I say you should show up to work at this time, but this is the output of what I'm expecting. If they know that, then they're going to do whatever it takes to get to that output. That is our job as managers to understand that output. What happens today is, and I'm not saying this is true for everybody, but people are very lazy about thinking about that output. It's it's a very like, you know, that is too ambiguous. That, if that gets solved, if that's very clear, then you have you can absolutely measure that and then you know whether someone's working or not. It's literally that simple. Yeah. To, to be honest with you, like I used to, I, I, and I still do. I really, I really believe that. And, and funny enough, like, I mean, I work remotely now in Chicago um, and it, it, it really is the best thing, but to be frank with you, I wasn't always ready for it. And, and uh, it, it's really because I went from that big environment. I then went to managing, a, a, you know, an office basically by myself for quite some time, like literally only alone. So for a lot of your employees, uh, or, or team members, they probably feel the same. At first, that was a bit difficult to get used to. Like it took a bit more of a maturity on my part to be more organized, more diligent about my work, you know, fitting schedule and not getting too comfortable with the flexibility of things. And I guess that's that's different based on different personalities. But now I got to a point where I love working remotely, man. I love working from home. Um, Budget-wise, you also save a lot. I mean, whether it's a business or a corp, thinking as an entrepreneur, I think it's important because guess what? Even if you... And I'm not against co-working places, but, uh, you know, even if, if it's like that $400, $500 office, single office or whatever that cost is, think about what that yearly cost would look like and what else you could put in it, which is the opportunity cost. Um, but w- one of the things I wanted to ask you, uh, I-, I saw one of the CEOs, again, of a tech company, not going to mention the name, um, but he had a post, uh, I guess, before COVID, which was also interesting. And he was saying he was kind of arguing um, against what we're, what we're talking about. And he was saying that, you know, uh, employees physically in a company are, are basically like cells, you know, and as they aggregate together, they, they feed off each other's en- energy, creativity, ideas start throwing back and forth. And I guess it would d- depend on culture, but what would you think of, of something like that? I mean, I think it has merit. Um, there is definitely, there are some things that you lose when you are remote. That's for sure. Mm. Um, so you, you solve that in other ways. Um, so if you, for example, you make, you make more mini, mini get togethers, just as an example. Um, so yeah, I, I don't think that there is a perfect solution for remote, just as there isn't a perfect solution for being at the office all the time. The problem when you're at the office all the time and you do remote sometimes is that then when you're at home, it feels like a vacation day. Yeah. So the, the, exactly. it's, about, it's all about mentality, right? Like at the moment, the mentality for us is that remote, when you're at home, you're working. So if anything, um, 
yes, the, the, the creativity aspect for sure. Um, that's something that we all kind of miss. And, you know, I always joke about this. Like I said, because we don't see each other as often, when people see me, they hug me. If they saw me every day, they wouldn't hug me, right? They'd be like, that's weird. Why would I hug this guy every day? So if anything, I get more affection because we don't see each other as, as much. You know, absence makes the heart grow fonder. So yeah. that, that is true. But in terms of how you would solve creative stuff, you would just send pods away to get to know each other. But also like we do other things, like we have something called a donut that we do, which, uh, which is an app that you can download uh, on Slack for free. And it matches different people in the company to just to talk to each other, to shoot the shit randomly for 15 minutes. In those processes, sometimes you get, or in those interactions, sometimes you get new ideas and yeah. creative ideas. So you have to just do different things. Like in our company, because the culture is so relaxed, people are a lot more uh, comfortable to talk to each other and be very creative. I don't think you can have a remote culture with a very stiff environment where everyone is afraid of what... <laughs> it's one of the funniest things is that when people join the company, they're so, they don't know how to demonstrate visibility because they were so used to demonstrating visibility by just being in an office before. Mm. If that's when we step in and say, it's okay, this is the job you do. This is how you demonstrate visibility by just showing us the output. It's all about that expectation setting. And one more thing I'm going to say about this whole scenario, at least this is how we handle things. We have a very strict three-month probation in the company. Many companies have variations of this probation and some people follow it very strictly. Some people don't. We are very strict with it. And you said it's three months? Oh. Yeah, three months. And it's true for every position in the company. It doesn't matter where you come in. If so what are you a, looking for? You know, like, day, like, let's say day one to, to, to three months in. What are those things? Uh, maybe let's go on, on, the, on the bad side. What, what, what would those red flags be in your mind uh, for something not to go well? Well, one of the big things you mentioned is, you know, it takes some people time to go from a non-remote environment to a remote environment. So yes. if they don't organize themselves, that's a problem, right? Mm -hmm. And you can tell very quickly in three months whether someone's able to actually manage this remote thing or not. So that's one big thing. Second one is judgment. Like, what kind of, like you're now in the company, you're participating in the culture. How are you actually participating? Is it in a way that's positive or is it kind of detrimental? So culture is, uh, so that judgment is another thing. And then just your ability to perform to those outputs that we have or those outcomes that we have expected from you. That's pretty much it. It's, it's not very complicated, but my point is that those three months, we tell everyone before they start with us, before they accept the job offer, that this is not, this is not like a loosey-goosey three months. This is do or die three months. Mm -hmm. if, you, if you do not make it, don't feel bad because not everyone does. So it's in that like we, we learned early on that it's important to catch these problems up front. And then if, if someone is even at the, like the 70th percentile of, of being successful at this, we don't continue on with that because we don't have the capacity in a remote way to close the gap as easily. Mm. So those are the ways in which you, you sort of moderate your, your decision-making, if you will, around, around resourcing. Amazing. I want to wrap it up with one, one last question for you, Shrad. And for everyone listening, what would that piece of advice that helped you or maybe served you well during your journey so far, what advice would you rally on to them, especially for aspiring founders? Um, I would say the, one of the best things I found is do, the, do as many things as you can without worrying about failure. Mm. Be, be okay to be wrong it's okay and 
don't worry about it. Even if you're wrong, don't let it, don't let it internalize you. It come inside of you and become a part of your narrative where it makes you upset. Being wrong is a very normal part of, of running or building a business. It's so normal. The only thing is try to be right more often than you're wrong. <laughs> that's the, that's the key. That's the equation. <laughs> that's the equation. So it's not about the fact that you will have zero wrongs. You will have them, but just try to be right more than the wrongs. And that's the best advice I can give. And that is the advice I've followed from day one. That's why I don't worry about going into a room and looking like I don't know what I'm talking about. It, it does not worry me at all because I know other things. I may not know that I have enough confidence to know, or I guess I'm self-assured enough to know that I don't need to know everything. Mm. And just in that way, be, be okay and have the humility to be wrong as, as much as, you know, as much as it happens to you. If you found this podcast useful, make sure to share it out with your community. And if you haven't already done so, subscribe to the podcast. I'll see you next time.